0: Thanks so much, Ramona, for reading. Really appreciate that. Um, As we think about prayer over the course of this month, I don't know if you realize this, but normally on a Sunday, any given Sunday, um, our elders are responsible for the pastoral prayer. And I I don't know if you just thought it was just random people coming up, (laughs) but our elders all have a Sunday appointed, except for the second Sunday of the month, which is uh, today when I do it, But all of our elders take a turn praying. And I so appreciate some of the elders are here because they take so much time and care and thought and reflection in preparing to pray and lead the congregation in prayer. I know some people feel that, you know, maybe we shouldn't write out our prayers. It should just be spontaneous. I disagree. And and we're going to see that in the Lord's Prayer. When the disciples went and said, teach us to pray, uh, they were looking for a signature prayer just as John gave to his disciples. And uh, the the Jewish people would have been very used to praying uh, recorded or pre-written prayers over and over again as part of their habit. And so I I just want to thank the elders for the work they put into the careful thought for leading our congregation in prayer on any given Sunday. Well, we are looking at the Lord's Prayer, and we are looking at orienting to God. What does it mean to orient our lives toward God? Well, if you've ever been a student, and most of you have, I assume, uh, you know that sometimes when you go to school for the first time, you'll be uh, heading to what? Orientation. School orientation. And uh, sometimes it's a a love-hate relationship for students because it can be incredibly boring. Or if you're going to like a brand new university or a school maybe in Spain or something like that, uh, there is excitement to get that first orientation class as they come into that. That word uh, in the original, that orient or orientation, is a strange and kind of peculiar word. It actually just means to turn toward the east. I don't know if you realize that, but that's the way that the the word kind of uh, came about. As the uh, Christian churches began to be built in the west, west of Jerusalem, they decided to direct the buildings back toward Jerusalem. And so there was an orientation toward Jerusalem, and that's simply what the word means. Well, how does that play out? When, when our students show up at uh, school for the first time, they don't all face east. <laughs> so what does it mean today when we talk about the word orientation or orienting to God? Well, there's a newer definition as the word has evolved over the centuries, and the definition could be this, to put oneself in, to put oneself in the right position, especially in relation to unfamiliar surroundings. Just think about that for a second. To orient yourself is to put yourself in the right position, especially in relation to unfamiliar surroundings. Now, some of you know we have a new puppy in our house. And having a new puppy is kind of like having a baby. The only downside is this baby is not going to grow up and support me in my old age. I'm going to be—that's your job, by the way, Kira. Not the puppy, but the baby— And so we have this puppy, and it's quite exciting and a lot of fun. The only downside is it's been like 25 below for a very long time. And our puppy, like myself, does not like to walk very long in the cold weather. Now, we've had a couple of opportunities to go for longer walks, and Kira and I have noticed something very interesting about our puppy. At first, she'll be very excited to get out. And we'll go, and everything's very curious. She's looking for new people and dogs and distractions, squirrel or whatever it is. Uh, She's watching for things, very excited. But as the walk continues, she'll suddenly realize that nothing is familiar around her. That's what it seems. She stops and she looks around and she realizes everything around her is unfamiliar. And she starts to whine a little bit and she looks to us for reassurance. But as the walk continues and we round the corner and she sees the house, she suddenly knows where she is and she suddenly starts pulling probably to get in out of the cold but she starts pulling toward the house it's like a dog in the iditarod pulling a sleigh across alaska right she's ready to go what has she done she's oriented herself she's found her direction in unfamiliar surroundings suddenly she recognizes something and she moves toward it with urgency that's what we want to do during these days i think we're all facing again (laughs) uncertain times. I mean, we face that in our own lives on a regular basis. Uh, Whatever comes our way, whether it's sickness, whether it's it's financial strain, whether it's an unexpected loss or something like that, can really throw us into disoriented times. And then add to that this blanket of COVID and all that's been happening in the last two years. I think there's been a cumulative effect on most of our lives. This ongoing disorientation, where do we find that sense of stability and direction and purpose? How do we keep going in the midst of this? That's what this challenge is all about. How do we orient our lives to God? How do we turn the corner and see something that is, that is rock solid in the life of God that's found in Jesus Christ and move toward that with urgency and purpose? That's what we want to do uh, during this time. How do we place ourselves in the right position during disorienting times? We pray. We pray. That's the invitation over this month. That's the invitation in Scripture. If you're sick right now, the Bible says pray. If you are grateful and things are going really well, the Bible says give thanks. In other words, pray. If you are confused right now and uncertain, the Bible says ask for wisdom. In other words, pray. Um, if you have sinned, the Bible says, confess. In other words, pray. No matter what circumstance we face, the Bible says, pray. That's our orientation. That's what directs us back toward God in good times and bad times, in sad times, in really times of great joy. Paul said in First Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God, in Christ Jesus for you. said this before, sometimes we struggle with wondering, what's God's will for my life? Should I buy the Toyota or the Honda? I'm sure God doesn't really care, honestly, about that. Like, you, make up your mind, do a sheet of pros and cons, whatever it takes. But the Bible does give us a sense of the will of God from time to time, and it's here. Rejoice always and pray without ceasing, because that's what will orient our lives. In times of confusion. So that's why we're looking at the Lord's Prayer, this so-called Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but really the prayer of Jesus is found in John chapter 17. If you have a chance to read that, you'll see something very, very deep that's on the heart and mind of Christ as he prays to his Father. But we do call this the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to be looking at it as it's found in Matthew chapter 6. It's interesting because the Lord's Prayer in some ways is Christianity's greatest prayer. I don't know if you've been to other churches, maybe Anglican churches in the background or Presbyterian or others, and we normally have a whole series of prayers that we pray throughout Sunday and throughout the year. Of all the prayers, the Lord's Prayer is Christianity's greatest prayer. I'm sure we could say that. But it's also Christianity's strangest prayer. And here's why. It's prayed by Christians and all Christians, but it never mentions Christ. It never mentions Jesus. It's prayed in all the churches, but it never mentions the church. And that's kind of a curious thing to me as we think through the Lord's Prayer and how unique it is, how powerful it is, how influential it is, and that it doesn't mention the things that we normally talk about and pray about. Um, And that's not a good or bad thing. It's just an observation. Well, as Luke records the Lord's Prayer, and it's found in Matthew and Luke, as Luke records it, It's actually in response to a simple question that the disciples asked. What was the question? Lord, teach us to pray. And I'm sure Jesus said, finally, a good question out of you guys. Because they asked Jesus all kinds of questions. Sometimes they'd ask Jesus a question, and what would he do? He would respond with another question. That must have been irritating from time to time. Peter comes up and looks at Jesus and says, "'Hey, Jesus, how are you today?' And Jesus says, no, Peter, how are you today? It's like, no, just, just answer the question, Jesus. Or sometimes Jesus gave a, an answer that was really, really cryptic. They would say, when is the kingdom coming? It's not for you to know the time or seasons. And they're like, just give the answer. We know that you know. But on this instance, when they come and say, teach us to pray, Jesus seems to say, I have an answer. I have something for you. And what he gives is brilliant and beautiful and completely simple. And it's something that we can all take. In Matthew, in the original Greek, it's just 57 words long. And uh, Daryl Johnson, the author and preacher, he has a little book that you can get uh, through Amazon, actually, and it's great, highly recommend it. And he calls it 57 words that changed the world. These 57 words that we find, and that's our focus. Well, what is it all about? If you look at the Lord's Prayer, there's six main petitions, actually, in it. six main requests that we find in the Lord's Prayer. The first three are focused around the word you. As we look through it, we see that we talk about your name, right? We also talk about your kingdom, speaking to God. We also talk about your will. It focuses on your, I should say, your kingdom, your will, your name. And then the second three petitions focus on us. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. And deliver us from the evil one. And so that's kind of split. But at the very heart of it, right in the middle, is this phrase. On earth as it is in heaven. And that's really the key that unlocks the Lord's Prayer. And it's so important in Matthew's Gospel because the Lord's Prayer falls right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5-7. through 7? It's where Jesus explains the, the, uh, the growth of the kingdom of God, the infilling, the bursting through, the breaking through of God's kingdom into our lives and into this world. And as we read that, right in the middle, he offers the Lord's Prayer. And right in the middle of that, we read this, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's really the secret of it. This fundamental desire... To see God set the world right. Is that your desire? Say, God, come and set this world right. God, come and set my life right. God, come and set my family right. God, come and set my neighborhood right. God, come and set things right. May there be justice and mercy and peace. The Lord's prayer is a fundamental desire to see God do What only God can do. That's the fundamental truth that we find in the Lord's Prayer. That's my prayer for this new year. I I hope it was my prayer every year, but I feel an urgency this year to pray this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like for God to come and set things right? We're going to be exploring that, but today we're going to look at just that first phrase, our Father who art in heaven, because it gives us a glimpse of what it means for God to set things right. Understanding the one to whom we're praying is essential. When we're asking God to do what only God can do, then we need to know to whom we're praying. And so we're praying to our Father who art in heaven. And so in this prayer, Jesus orients us. He, He moves us and directs us toward God as the Father, By revealing the heart of the Father. This is really important. Um, So often when we go to prayer, we're focused on what? We're focused on our agenda. We're focused on what we want to get done, what we want God to do for us in that sense. But in this prayer, we get a glimpse at God's agenda, we get a glimpse at God's desire, His priorities. And when we do that, then we begin to align our lives and our priorities with the priorities that are found in the Lord's Prayer. Daryl Johnson, and we have a quote that we'll put on the screen here for us. Uh, Daryl Johnson, out of that little book, 57 Words That Changed the World, he says this, On God's heart is the hallowing of his name, the coming of his kingdom, the fulfilling of his good pleasure, providing for us so we can live a kingdom life, canceling our debts and reconciling us and protecting us from the attacks of Satan. That's what's on God's heart. Does that resonate with you? That's something that when we understand what's on God's heart and when we align our prayers with his will, then we see things happen. We see our lives changed, our lives transformed. This is what's on God's heart. So by praying in this way, we understand and align ourselves with the priorities of the Father. So that opening line, our Father who art in heaven, we see three things really briefly this morning. First of all, We see a relationship. This is just fundamental to the opening line. This prayer invites us to approach God as our Heavenly Father. Now, we say that so often that we become familiar. It's like stating the obvious. But we have to think a little more deeply about it. The primary way that Jesus addressed God was my Father. That's so interesting because in the Old Testament, sometimes the nation of Israel or sometimes maybe individuals We'll think of God and speak of God and relate to God as Father, but not in this really close, intimate way. When Jesus comes, he teaches us to relate to God as Father, as Abba Father, in this close, personal, intimate kind of way. It's a beautiful kind of relationship. I remember when my dad was in his final year of his life, which is about just 11 years ago. He'd be coming up to his birthday this coming week, And we'll remember him and celebrate his life again. But just in that last year, I happened to have a very confusing time in my life. And I also had some opportunity to go visit him, which was a gift from God that I didn't expect. I remember going to visit my dad. And I loved my dad, but he was always working. And I think I have mentioned this before. He worked in a mine, so four days a week. And then he built houses another four days a week. For my dad, there were eight days in the week. And he was always working. He was just constantly working. Uh, But the times that we connected is when we'd watch hockey together. I don't know what it was, but with uh, all my brothers in the house, we all had to pick a different team. I don't know why we couldn't, you know, support the same team. There always had to be competition among us. And so dad, of course, had the Canucks. I had Winnipeg Jets because I was born there. It was by default. And uh, my brother David, during those days, picked Edmonton Oilers because they were winning all the time. So we would support, but that was our, our point of connection, was watching hockey or maybe building a house together or doing those kind of things. So when I went to visit my dad, I didn't know what to expect. In his final year of his life, we knew that the end was coming. He was very, very sick with pancreatic cancer. And one day I remember sitting down trying to get this little computer fired up for him so he could go on Google Maps and look at the city of Glasgow, because he used to, in Glasgow, Scotland, he used to drive buses. Now I'm getting everything sorted out, and suddenly I feel a pair of hands on my shoulders, and he starts massaging my back. You have to understand, my dad has never done that in his life before. Like, it was such a moment, I, I felt myself tensing up, I didn't know what to do. Uh, he wasn't a big, huggy kind of person, but suddenly he was massaging my back, and he was just spending a moment as a father and a son, and it was beautiful. I think of that when I think of God as our Heavenly Father, there's times when God just wants to spend a moment with us, just to spend a moment, just to be present and fully present there. But I also recognize that it's difficult for some people to relate to God in that way because they didn't have a good relationship with their dad. Or maybe there's some hurt or there's some anxiety around the whole concept of thinking of God as father. And some people have come to me and said, why can't I just pray to Jesus? Well, you can. I mean, just pray. God will hear it and sort it out, and and he's big enough. You don't have to do it really specifically or according to a a specific uh, way. Just pray. Let God sort it out. But there is a reason why Jesus encourages us to pray to the Father, because Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 14. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So regardless of what our experience of an earthly father is, when it comes to God as heavenly father, we can have a certain assurance that God is good because we know Jesus. And we like Jesus. We love Jesus. And we love to come to Jesus because Jesus seems so approachable to us. But Jesus reminds us, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Again, with Daryl Johnson in his book, he, he wrestled with this for some time and Then he said this, I sense that Jesus was saying to me, the Father is just like me. God the Father is just as good, just as gentle, just as approachable, just as vulnerable, just as welcoming as I am. And so we can have confidence in approaching the Father because we know Jesus. So it's not just in this general sense, though. Sometimes we talk about God as the Father of all people that we are all his offspring. But as we come to the New Testament, we realize that Jesus is talking about the Father in a very specific way, as Abba, this intimate, close relationship. John chapter 1, verse 12 says this. To all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with physical birth resulting from human passion or a plan, but from a birth that comes from God. In that sense, we call God Father. So the first key to praying this prayer is to be in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Are you? Do you call God Abba, Father? Do you have that understanding? That's absolutely essential. Relationship is at the core of this opening line. The second thing is this. Lordship. We're taught to remember that our Father is In heaven, that his name is holy. Uh, This is the paradox of the Lord's Prayer. We did this whole thing on the Paradox Project. We talked about how all throughout Scripture there's lots of paradoxes where we talk about Jesus being fully God and fully man. It seems to be opposite truths, and the truth is found in the and, in the middle. Well, the same is true here. God is fully intimate, fully close to us, and he is also transcendent. He's also other. He's also much greater than us. And this is so important as part of this. He is our good, good father, and he is at the same time our almighty king. That's important to keep in check as we go into this. Lordship is a word that we don't use too often, right? But I found right before Christmas time, and I put it on my wish list for Christmas, and my family ignored it completely. But apparently... For the low price of $49.95, you can buy one square foot of Scotland. And if you do that, they will actually give you a lordship title. There's a certificate and everything, people. You can go to the website. It seems totally legit. $49.95, <clears throat> and you get a title, and you can use it. So when you go to the airplane and they call your name, you know, you're waiting in line, it will be Lord Scott Mackenzie Simpson. And I thought that would be Brilliant. And my family said, You don't need that. <laughs> that's gonna be that's gonna go to your head. So, but we don't often use that title of Lord, and yet I think we understand it. And we understand that with Jesus and with our Father, it's not just some cheap title. It's a title that we would think about like from, from passages like Psalm 115. When the disciples first heard Jesus talk about our Father in heaven, Psalm 115 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. That's the sense in which we also have in this prayer. A.W. Pink is an author you might not be familiar with. Arthur Pink. He's an old uh, reformed kind of Puritan type guy. Wrote a lot of things and I've got a quote from him and I thought it was really interesting. He says this. If the words our Father inspire confidence and love, then the words which art in heaven should fill us with humility and awe. These are the two things that should ever occupy our minds and engage our hearts. The first without the second tends toward unholy familiarity. The second without the first produces coldness and dread. By combining them together, we are preserved from both evils. So we hold that intention. He is our loving Father. He is also our Heavenly Father, hallowed be his name. Okay, third thing, briefly, as we wrap things up. So we have relationship and we have lordship and then we also have fellowship. And this is really important to me as I reflect on this and the Lord's Prayer and what it invites us to. Because we're invited to pray this prayer not simply as individuals, but we're invited to pray this as a community. This is our Father who art in heaven. And the emphasis in this whole prayer is on this communal aspect of the disciples together, whether it's here, whether it's at Crescent Heights, wherever it is in the city today, wherever it is in the world today, we are praying to our Father and to have that sense of community. You know, during this time, and as uh, the pandemic kind of winds on, and as we make choices, and as we go through different struggles, I think one of my deepest concerns is for the unity of the church. Not just this church, but the church worldwide. Uh, Because the unity of the church is so important for the witness of the gospel. And and that's that's a big part of my heart. And so we see in the early stages of the pandemic, as we reflect back on it, I think we were so unified because we had this common enemy that we were going to fight together. And we had the sense of purpose, the sense of, okay, this is going to be a little bit odd, but it's kind of unique. It's like going camping for the first time. But if you had to camp for the whole year and then two years, you'd get pretty sick and tired of it after a while. And that's what has been kind of happening and I can think seeping into us a little bit as we've gone on this journey, constantly trying to innovate, constantly trying to find new ways to connect and communicate. We grow weary. But in our weariness, sometimes we disconnect from one another for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes the the church... And the church leaders, our elders, or others become targets, easy targets. Uh, We're standing up here, we're available to people, and we become targets for people's dissatisfaction or some of just the junk that goes on in our lives. And we need a place to vent it. So sometimes that comes out in unfortunate ways. Some people vote with their feet, others go silent. Some bring in a a list four years long of grievances (laughs) And it's been unearthing things in us, as Tyler said, as a church and as individuals that we need to pay attention to. Some of those things are wonderful and great opportunities. Some of those things are kind of ugly. We have to address that as well. So this is why I think this prayer is so important during this time. Because we come together with one Father, as one family in Christ. And once we get a hold of that and understand that, then we continue to orient ourselves in the right direction. I've shared this illustration before, and I'll share it again because it's a good one in my mind. Hopefully it's a good one for you. But I remember being in England, working with some churches there, and I used to love to go for walks across the fields. And you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to walk through farmer's fields as long as you close the gate, which I mostly remember to do. Uh, But I remember walking into some of the farmer's fields and seeing a flock of sheep in this one particular part. And it's beautiful. If you've seen the green fields and hills of England and a flock of sheep, it just seems right. And so as I'm going across and I see this, it's so beautiful. But I was 20 years old at the time. That's my disclaimer. And I thought, how close can I get to those sheep before they either bite me or run away? I didn't know what sheep would do, really. So I thought I'd try it. I did not get close to them at all. They recognized the stranger danger and they fled from my presence. And uh, I'm sure the farmer did not appreciate me chasing after his sheep in the field and sometimes leaving his gate open. I was 20, just to remind you of that. Then one day I'm walking through the field and I see the farmer come out, so I behave myself. But I see he's got buckets of what I presume is feed and he makes this weird calling noise with his mouth And all of a sudden, the sheep, wherever they are scattered all over the field, they turn to him and they run. And as the sheep get closer to the shepherd, what happens? They also get closer to one another. I think it's just a beautiful image in my mind of how do we form unity in the church. Unity in the church is not uniformity. We don't always have to act the same way or believe the same things. Do we understand that? We can journey together even in disagreement? But unity comes when we're focused together on the Father. And when we move in the direction of the Father, so we're drawing closer together to one another. So this simple prayer is one of the greatest gifts that Jesus has given to his followers. It reveals the heart of the living God for us. It allows us to align our priorities with the priorities of God, especially when we find ourselves in unfamiliar circumstances. The early Jewish disciples of Jesus understood that prayer was the central part of worship. When they went up to worship, they went actually up to recite prayers. That's what they did. And so I want to adapt a quote in closing from Edmund Clooney. <clears throat> and he uses the word worship, but I'm going to insert the word prayer as we wrap this up together. Listen to this. Prayer is a meeting at the center so that that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We pray so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to pray consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. Without prayer, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are in turn alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. If there is no center, there is no circumference. Prayer centers our lives so that we don't live eccentrically without center. So as we finish today, I'm going to invite you to stand one more time. We're going to think that we're in an Anglican church these days. It's wonderful. And I'm going to invite you just to pray with me, and we'll put it on the screen, a really simplified version of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, just as we pray this through, pray it with your heart. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, let your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Deliver us from the evil one. Amen.